Philippians 2, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any sharing in the Spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united and agreeing with each other. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my loved ones, just as you always obey me, not just when I am present, but now even more while I am away, carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is the one who enables you to both want and to actually live out his good purposes. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure. Innocent children of God surrounded by people who are crooked and corrupt. Among these people, you shine like the stars in the world because you hold on to the word of life. This will allow me to say on the day of Christ that I haven't run for nothing or worked for nothing. Quite a lot of significant things have happened in the world since we were last together in person. One of the things that I know has been very present in the minds of many of us is a conversation about race that's been unfolding over these months. Not just here in America, but also in communities all across the globe. Here at Trinity, we just finished a sermon series called Future People. At the start of that series, I showed you a diagram of human history as the Bible describes it. Uh, On one side is the present age, the messed up world as we all know it now. Uh, On the other side is the age of the spirit, the future world where God's will will be done in everything on earth as it is in heaven. At the moment, Jesus' followers live in the overlap between these two ages. We still live in the present messed up age, but we're also empowered by the Spirit to start living the life of the future now. Our life together as the people of faith is meant to be a preview for the world of the future that's in store for everything. One of the questions I've been asking myself over the last few months is what it means for the church, the people of Jesus, to live the life of the future, specifically in relation to race. Now, I certainly don't claim to have the final word on this question, 
Uh, but I want to share with you this morning just a few of the things that have stood out to me as I've taken this question into prayer and into scripture. People in Jesus' day didn't think about race the way that modern people do, but there's no question that the New Testament church had plenty of experience with cultural and ethnic tensions. There's a story where Jesus walks into the Jewish temple and he sees people in the temple hawking animals and trading currency in an area that's called the Court of Gentiles. At this time, there were signs on the wall of the temple promising death to any non-Jew who went beyond this courtyard into the inner courts of the temple, which means that this chaotic yard that's full of squawking birds and squabbling money changers was the only place a Gentile could worship. Jesus is visibly upset at what he sees, and as he clears the yard out, he declares... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. In the book of Revelation, when we get a glimpse of God's future, this is exactly what we see. People from every tribe and tongue and nation who are gathered in the throne room to worship God. Jesus' distress in the temple makes perfect sense when we recognize the gap he's seeing between God's future and the present practice of the people of faith. Instead of mirroring God's passion for every tribe and tongue, the people of Israel were disregarding God's desires and were dishonoring those who God was calling. Even the very design of their religious space reinforced an ethnic-based hierarchy of who really belonged. You might wonder, what does this have to do with us? We don't worship in a tiered temple. Uh, We don't put up signs saying who's out. Uh, But in fact, most religious communities still find ways to signal who really belongs and who doesn't. A few years ago, I attended a Mennonite Church USA event where the worship was led by a majority black congregation. Uh, During the worship time, I could hear the couple next to me audibly grumbling. This isn't how we worship, they said. A few days later, I was cc'd on an email chain full of other people who were complaining that our traditions hadn't been followed in the worship service. Of course, the unspoken question here is who should be counted in the we and the our? I truly can't tell you how many people I've spoken to in my career who felt excluded from our faith tradition for reasons of race, ethnicity, or culture. The written message on the door might say, all are welcome. But in practice, they found they quickly hit an inner church wall that said, you'll get no further unless you look and sound and share the same names as us. I believe Jesus' actions in the temple may provide us with an overdue reminder to rethink the meaning of we and our and us. We have a history of misapplying these words in the church, defining them by ethnic or cultural markers instead of by faith. Perhaps without even realizing what we were doing, we've used these terms to hold people at a distance that God has called and gifted for the inner courts. 
What an amazing thing it would be if we began to redefine our we based on faith in Jesus and allegiance to his kingdom and his mission. That would be a real significant step toward living the life of the future where people of every tongue gather in God's inner courts. Another passage that's been on my mind lately is the one we read this morning from Philippians chapter 2. In just a few short statements, this passage sums up what it looks like to reflect the character of Jesus. Honestly, I've never met a question that this passage in Philippians 2 doesn't speak to somehow. In the last few months, as I've listened to people telling stories of their experiences of racism, not just in the world, but in the church, something has been gradually dawning on me that I'm embarrassed I didn't catch on to earlier. Sometimes when we talk about racism, what we're talking about are deep-seated prejudices. But sometimes what we're talking about looks a lot more like basic selfishness. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, Christ is our peace. He has made both Jews and Gentiles into one group. Today we make up one unified body of Jesus. But Jesus' body isn't monochromatic. Jesus' body looks more like a patchwork quilt of varied patterns and designs. As the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians of Jesus' day discovered, even bound together by Jesus, they still had different experiences, practices, preferences, priorities, and needs. I mean, they aren't the only ones with differences. Uh, Just to take one small contemporary example, um, one thing that can vary widely among different cultural and ethnic groups around the world, and even in the U.S., is perspectives on time. In some communities, it's considered important to start and end gatherings at preset times. Among other communities, gatherings begin when enough people have arrived and end whenever the leaders feel the Holy Spirit is done moving. Now, there might well be cases where cultural differences are a genuine matter of Christian moral concern. But I've also noticed that Christians are prone to backwards engineer Christian reasons to justify cultural preferences that are just that, preferences. So how does a future people made up of people of many tribes and tongues learn to love each other well when real differences in needs and values and preferences don't just suddenly go away? The only answer I can see to that question is the example of Jesus himself. Jesus, Philippians 2 tells us, didn't exploit his divine power to get what he wanted for himself. Instead, Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself of his divine power for our sake so that we could get what we needed. Jesus prioritized our good and our interests, even ahead of his own. And Philippians chapter 2 says, Adopt the same attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. As Jesus' people, we follow his example in all things. 
We are not to exploit any power we might possess to take what we want for ourselves. Instead, we are to consider our neighbor as better than ourselves. Like Jesus, Philippians says, we are to lay aside selfishness and prioritize their needs, their interest, their good, even when it costs us something ourselves. This is fundamentally what it means to be a Jesus followers. Friends, I'm not going to pull any punches on this one. This is really hard. Where we have the power or the ability to shape things the way we want them, it's incredibly difficult to surrender that for the love of someone else. But imagine how beautiful a community would be that actually practiced this, where every member emptied themselves of self-seeking and prioritized the good of their neighbor. I can't imagine a practice more revolutionary. What would it look like for you to go through life asking not what do I want or what would be good for me, but what would be in the interest of my brother or sister who is different from me? One more thought for today. When I'm teaching people how to read the Bible, I always teach them to read it together with others. This is important because it's easy to hear our own expectations and assumptions echoing back to us and think that what we're hearing is the voice of God. One of the difficulties with seeking truth is we don't know what we don't know. The beauty of seeking truth with others is that sometimes they can see what lies in our blind spot. I could talk all day about the people who've impacted how I read the Bible and see God. Some of them were victims of abuse. Some were refugee children. It it sounds funny, but sometimes just reading the Bible with men causes me to hear it different than I did in a women's Bible study. During seminary, I lived for a time with a black woman who grew up in Ferguson, Missouri. Her friendship and sharing of her life called my attention to all sorts of blind spots that I didn't even know that I had. Acts tells a story about how James, the brother of Jesus, participated in mediating a dispute about how Jews and Gentiles should relate to each other in the church across their cultural differences. According to the book of Acts, James listens carefully to the experiences of diverse believers. In the end, when he weighs in, his opinion is different than anyone could have expected who knew him, given his known investments. It seems clear that the Spirit has spoken to him in the midst of his listening to others. I like to think of that James, who was famous for his wisdom, might have had that experience in mind when he writes in his letter that's in the Bible, Know this, My dear brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to grow angry. If we would all practice this, being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, I am convinced we would have a much better chance of discovering what lies in our blind spots. I'd encourage you in the days ahead to keep these words from James in front of you, 
and really lean into them. Seek out voices and stories that challenge you and listen to them as deeply as you can. May God's Spirit be at work in all of us, individually and together, so that we speak and walk and act and listen like the future people that we are.